Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May the 10th, 2017. This is episode 2001 of the Survival Podcast. I've got a great one for you today. I've got a, uh, a fellow on the line by the name of Carlos Villamar. And we're going to talk about aquaponics and a Chinese solar greenhouse. Yeah. It should be a really great discussion today. He's going to talk to us about black soldier fly composting, automatic fish feeding, uh, patent law as well toward the end of this because he's a patent attorney by trade. All of that more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, folks. When I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was Safecastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support, which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at Directive21.com. Again, Directive, and then the number is 21.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 2001 because the episode is 2001. From Alex Shrug today, I have 9-11 first impressions and 9-11 the aftermath timeline. Uh, notable deaths this year, Dale Earnhardt, age 49, head trauma from a race car crash, a NASCAR stock car racer. That was a weird thing to me. That wreck, if you've ever seen it, did not look like something that you would expect somebody to die in. It really didn't. Um, George Harrison died this year of cancer, singer-songwriter for the Beatles. Ray Walson, uh, age 86, lupus, autoimmune disease. Boothby, the head groundskeeper at Starfleet Academy, The Martian in My Favorite Martian, and The Devil in Damn Yankees, still a great film. Barbara Olson died this year, age 45, 9-11 plane crash into the Pentagon. Fox News commentator and wife of Ted Olson, U.S. Solicitor General. And an unknown passenger on a 9-11 plane who took my cousin's place. A life for a life. She made it count. Yeah, that's a, that hits close to home. I think 9-11 hit us all close to home. The year in the film, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Shallow Hal, Monsters, Inc., Shrek, and Legally Blonde. This year in TV, 24 debuted. 16 years ago, Jack Bauer on 24 Hours to Find Terrorists and Save Americans. Um, do you, do you, do you feel old yet, folks? Enterprise, renamed Star Trek Enterprise in the third season, a prequel to the original Star Trek series. Alex Shrug said it was clunky. It was terrible, in my opinion. Weakest Link, contestants are mentally humiliated, and Fear Factor, contestants are physically humiliated. I never liked Fear Factor. It didn't look like fear to me. It just looked like grossness. This year in music, Where Were You When the World Stopped Turning, from Alan Jackson. The heavy metal band Anthrax announces they have changed their name to Basketful of Puppies. The recent Anthrax scare has forced the band to respond to criticism of their name. They take the criticism good-naturedly. The iPod and iTunes media player launch. XM Satellite Radio launches this year. 
In other news, Enron files Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Argentina freezes all bank accounts for a year. Riots ensue. Donald Rumsfeld admits that $2.3 trillion in Pentagon spending cannot be accounted for. Chief Justice Roy Moore installs the Ten Commandments Monument in the Judiciary Building. Andrea Yates drowns her five young children in Houston. And Microsoft releases Windows XP. Um, let's take a look at both of the 9-11 segments because I think it touches all of us. Here's what Alex Shrug says. I awaken dreary-eyed. The television is on. It's some sort of disaster movie. Smoke is streaming from a tower. It doesn't make sense until I realize it isn't a movie at all. It is real. Somehow a large passenger plane has accidentally flown into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. It is a bright, clear day. How could it happen? Fifteen minutes later, as reporters recount airplane crashes of the past, a second passenger plane crashes into the South Tower. It is no accident. It is war. People are trapped by fire and rubble. Others are painted in ash and blood as they evaluate to the street le- evacuate to the street level. Phone calls go out, many leaving last words on answering machines. A final farewell. Heroes march into the conflagration determined to save something from this disaster. Many will not return. Far away in Washington, D.C., people in the Pentagon crowd around television watching the scene in New York unfold. Unbeknownst to them, American Airlines Flight 77 has been hijacked by Islamic terrorists. On board is Fox News commentator Barbara Olson. She is on the phone with her husband, giving him information on the hijacking. She knows what is coming. She will not cry. Flight 77 plows into a newly reinforced section of the Pentagon. It can't hold back the death and destruction that follows. But if the plane had hit any other wall, well, it is bad enough. A fourth plane never gets to its final target. The passengers have received word. Their only hope is to take the plane back from the hijackers or die trining. Todd Beamer recites the Lord's Prayer in the 23rd Psalm. His last words are, let's roll. United Flight 93 plunges into a field in Pennsylvania. The fire in the Twin Towers continues. Nothing can stop it. Some people jump. Don't look. The structure weakens and then collapses, sending out massive clouds of ash and debris. It looks like one of those controlled explosions. Floor after floor pancakes crumbles and then falls. Dead. Dead. They are all dead. Who did this? I want a name. Muhammad Atta was the ringleader, but he is dead. Osama bin Laden? Yeah, I want him. My take by Alex Shrug. Conspiracy theories abound, but I try to stick to the simple explanations. Complicated things go wrong. People talk. Keep it simple. I assume this was true with the 9-11 attacks. I was proud of the way people around me reacted. No one panicked. People were angry, but not at Muslims in general, only the Islamic terrorists. I remember a public service announcement out of Texas put together to remind people that we're all Americans and individual, as individuals different, but together we are one. I am an American. Simple and effective. There is too much to say all at once, so all I'll say is no more. These are my first impressions surrounding the events of that fateful day. Yours may be different. We are Americans. My take by Southpaw Ben. One of the earliest memories is of coming home from preschool this day, sitting down on the couch next to our yellow closed baskets and just barely understanding what was going on. I knew it was bad, but I didn't realize how monumental the event was. Years later, I would hear and learn much about what happened, about how it changed America. But back then, I just knew that something really bad had happened, something far away. I live in southeast PA, so it wasn't really that far. But as a kid, it felt a world away. I was three at the time. Um, I want to read the timeline of the aftermath because so much did come from this. A lot of things happened after the attacks of World Trade Center and Pentagon. Here's a brief outline of what happened in the following weeks and months. Civilian air traffic resumes on September 13th. September 14th, the National Prayer Service is held at the Washington National Cathedral. 
September 14th, President Bush gives his bullhorn speech. I can hear you, the rest of the world hears you, and the people who knock these buildings down will hear us all soon. The New York Stocks Exchange reopens. It's the longest closure since the Great Depression. Anthrax attacks begin killing five. Letters containing anthrax spores are mailed to major TV news outlets, newspapers, and politicians. President Bush declares a war on terror. He addresses a joint session of Congress. October 7, the U.S. invades Afghanistan. The Taliban refused to turn over Osama bin Laden, so we go in. They had their chance. October 8, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security is proposed. I call it a foolish from the start. October 9, more anthrax letters arrive. A biodefense researcher is suspected by the FBI, but it's never proven. He commits suicide seven years later. October 26, the Patriot Act is now law. I'm a patriot, but where are, we, where are the mad bombers? November 13th, President Bush authorizes military tribunals for suspected foreign terrorists. November 14th, Northern Alliance troops supported by U.S. forces take Kabul, Afghanistan. December 3rd, the American Taliban John Walker Lynn is captured in the ba on the battlefield. He'll get 20 years. December 11th, Zacharias Mulasari is indicted for his part in the 9-11 attacks. He gets life without parole. He shouts, America, you lost, I won. The judge replies that he will die with a whimper. Good response, says Alex Shrugged. December 22nd, Richard Reed tries to ignite a shoe bomb on American Airlines Flight 63. Apparently he sweat too much and couldn't get the fuse lit. <clears throat> Uh, December 22nd, the Northern Alliance turns power in Afghanistan over to President Hamid Kazari. He will remain in office until 2014. The war on terror continues. Um, I'll tell you my 9-11 story. I think everybody that's old enough has one. I was uh, on an airplane headed from Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I, to this day, do not know if there was any correlation to this whatsoever. But with no weather issues, no congested flights, no nothing... Uh, our plane did a touch-and-go, which is where the plane begins to land, powers up, and takes back off. Um, this would have been right about the moment or somewhere near the moment of the impact of the first plane. Again, I have no idea if there's any correlation at all. I've been through touch-and-goes before. There's usually been a reason. The pilot has generally come on and explained why it happened. Oh, folks, they call us in a little bit too close, etc. If you've never experienced this, it can be very disheartening. If you've been on a plane many times, uh, if you're like a business traveler like I used to be, you will experience it, and it will become mundane to you. Just another day, at the, that's what happens sometimes. What's unusual is for the pilot to say nothing. Eh, whatever, I don't care. I get off the plane, I go to baggage claim, my bag is the first bag out of the chute. Seems like it's going to be a good day. I walk outside... Uh, sales rep that I was meeting is waiting for me. We're going to go on calls and, and go do sales calls. And uh, he turns the radio on. We're listening to Howard Stern show, and it, it, it you know comes out that a plane has hit one of the World Trade Center towers. We were actually joking about it. Not that any loss of life is is funny, but we assumed, like I think many Americans did who didn't see it on TV, that it was like a Cessna or something. How the hell would a seven 47 or a 757 or a 777, you know, a 737, whatever. How, how DC-8, how would a plane like that ever accidentally hit the World Trade Center? It just didn't make any sense, especially on a clear bluebird day. Um, so we're driving, and eventually it comes out the second plane hit, and Alex said in his write-up, it's war. Well, it's exactly what happened. This guy, Matt, who was my sales rep for the Pittsburgh area, turns to me and says, do you know what this means? I said, yes, this is war. And then, of course, then the third plane hit. The plane went down in Shanksville, just outside of Pittsburgh, which is where I was. Um, initially, I didn't worry about getting directly in touch with my wife 
because I knew that people were panicked all over the place. I knew she had my flight number. She could check. I would be fine. She'd know I was fine. And I didn't want to actually take up, you know, cellular carrier space to call her because I, you know, cell phones weren't what they are today. And uh, man, they shut down the cells really quick on this day. So I figured if somebody's trying to talk to their dying relative or something, I don't want to be the reason they can't. When the plane went down outside of Pittsburgh, I remembered when things happened when I was in grade school, like the Challenger going down and how they actually brought TVs into the classroom and just like stopped everything they were doing and showed them to us. So now I got to get to my wife because I'm afraid this is going to happen to my son. And all he's going to hear is Pittsburgh in an airplane. Uh, he was, I think, in seventh grade at the time. I get through to my wife. She calls the school. They were actually rude to her. They were rude to her. She said, I just want him to know that his father's fine. And they said, he'll find out when he gets home. And she said, I don't want him to hear what's... She said, we're not going to tell them what's going on. But she said they were rude. That pissed me off, but I had more important things to worry about, like how I was going to get home, because they shut down air traffic. And uh, obviously, we weren't going to get anything done. We canceled all of our, our sales calls. And a couple days later, I was able to get a rental car, one-way rental, when no one was able to do that, because we had a great travel coordinator that did it for us. And I had to drive to the Philadelphia airport to get my car, because that's where my car was, and I drove home. I remember that first night, I was talking to my son on the phone, telling him everything was going to be okay. And uh, he said to me, can a war come here? And I've always been the person that's been told, <clears throat> when I've dealt with you know loved ones with uh, terminal illness and things like that, that children ask questions that they're ready to hear the answers for. So I told him the truth. I said, Matthew, it just did, but don't you worry about it. We're going to be okay. And uh, But I wasn't going to tell him no because it was just not true. This just happened. We were just attacked. This is a war. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories around 9-11. And I have the most unpopular position in, in the debate. There is two main sides to this debate. The government did it. They made it happen. It was controlled demolitions, on and on and on. There's all types of um, things that people believe like this that are in my view, preposterous, that Larry Silverstein ordered the demolition of Building 7 by saying, you know, pull it. and it, I, I just find it preposterous. The other main belief system seems to be that the official story is 100% true. I have the unpopular position of our government screwed up really bad. Our government knew something was coming. And I believe our government wanted something. They wanted something to happen because... They can get things done in a time of crisis that they can't get done otherwise. That's what I really believe. And one piece of damning evidence to me on all this is, you know, the fact that we were running a drill that was what happened on the day that it happened and, you know, things like this and uh, a lot of other stuff that I won't go into. But one of the most damning things is that the president and vice president were asked to appear before the 9-11 Commission, and they did so with Two conditions. Actually, three conditions. Condition one, they would appear at the same time. At the same time. Um, actually, four conditions. Number two, they would not do so under oath. They would not do so under oath. Number three, there would be no transcript or recording of their testimony. And number four, they would not come back. They would do it once. That's damning enough. What's really damning to me, and you almost need, I'm going to play the audio of this, but you almost need to see the video of this as a parent to know when you're asking a child, how did that window get broken over there? And they're like, I don't know, Dad. I, 
you know, I, it could have gotten broken by a ball, but we weren't playing ball there. But it could have been a baseball, but it wasn't my base. And you know damn well he knows exactly what happened. And maybe he didn't break it. Maybe one of his friends did. Maybe a bully took his ball and threw it in the window, but he knows something he doesn't want to tell you, and he's guilty as sin, and you know it as a parent. This is George Bush, when he is asked about this very situation, here's the actual audio from that interview. And even the president and vice president agreed to meet with the commission, but with a catch. They insisted on meeting together, behind closed doors, and not under oath. President, why are you and the vice president insisting on appearing together before the 9-11 commission? Because the 9-11 commission wants to ask us questions. That's why we're meeting, and I look forward to meeting with them and answering their questions. Uh, why you're appearing together rather than separately, which was their request? Because it's a good chance for both of us to answer questions that the 9-11 commission is uh, looking forward to asking us, and I'm looking forward to answering them. Now, I know I'm going to get flamed by the people that believe the official narrative 100%, and I'm really going to get flamed by conspiracy theorists here. All I can tell you is I feel on some level my government was complicit in this or screwed up so badly that to this day we don't know how badly they screwed up and it was hidden. I don't know which of those is true, but either way, what I do know is that it was used as an excuse to take away rights from Americans, to put us all under 24-hour-a-day surveillance in all of our communications, and to trample and shit on the Constitution. So I don't really care how it happened. I care what they did with it. But one thing I will never forget is how I felt that day. And it's something that will live with me, like most of you who experienced it, till the day that I die. Especially if you were old enough to really understand it. Unlike Southpaw Ben, who was only three years old when this happened. I do want to point this out to you right now, though. I think it's important that we understand the track we've taken with this. If this this ongoing war on terrorism continues for another year, there will be soldiers going to Afghanistan to be shot at and die who weren't even alive the day that this happened, let alone three years old. We have soldiers there now who were a year old when this happened. A year old. And it doesn't look like we're going to put an end to this anytime soon. So you can take or leave my opinion on this, but I'll just tell you that I don't believe the American people have been given the whole truth. And I really believe that the extreme conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones and all that's it's controlled demolition and it can't I think they have been the perfect tool of the establishment to prevent anybody with reasonable questions from being heard and lumped in with them. But that's just how I feel. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode.
All right, with that, let me introduce our special guest at this time to talk about better things than 9-11. How about growing your own food with aquaponics and the Chinese solar greenhouse and a bunch of other cool stuff with that? I want to say, hey, Carlos, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you for having me here. I'm glad to have you on today, man. Hey, um, you're a first-time guest, so I really want the audience to kind of know like who you are as a, as a person you know, beyond uh, the topic which we have today, which is awesome on solar greenhouses and aquaponics. What, what do you do professionally and how did you get into it? What I mean by that, I was like, take us back to like your senior year in high school and you're trying to figure out what to do with your life and how do you end up in the world of you know, being into intellectual property law? Well, uh, Jack, that's kind of a long story, but uh, I basically uh, graduated from high school with straight D's intentionally. Uh, I joined uh, the Air Force when I was 17 on the pre-enlistment program, and I went off to boot camp. Um, I didn't have much guidance. My parents were divorced, uh, so the recruiter, it's a typical story. You know, I, I go in there, and, and I was like, hey, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to design jets. And fly them. He goes, well, do I have the job for you? And uh, I get the basic training, and everybody gets a movie, and they start getting to my job, and it's a slide. And they got a guy on top of a plane drilling a hole, and it says, be able to punch holes, ring metal, and do minor repair on aircraft structures. And I'm sitting there going, how the heck do I get out of this? And next thing you know, they show a movie of these dudes in a Black Hawk with a camo, and they're flying over enemy lines, and they go down on a line, and, and it's, uh, you know they rescue a pilot that's been shot down over enemy lines, and they're like, pararescue special D-1550, and then they cover uh, the requirements for pararescue. And I was in pretty good shape. I was a black belt. I'd done martial arts uh, most of my life, but I had never swam a mile in my entire life. And one of the requirements was uh, swimming a mile in under 60 minutes. Um, and I wasn't going to volunteer until this really heavy set dude got up there and volunteered. And I said, damn it, if that dude's going to do it, I'll do it. Uh, well, to make a long story short, I, I tried out for pararescue. I made it through indoctrination training. Uh, I made it through jump school. And unfortunately, I washed out in Special Forces Scuba School down in Trombo Point. Uh, and that was sort of a downward spiral for my military career. I ended up getting out of the military shortly after that and decided to become an electrical engineer. Uh, the military gave me the, uh, uh, well, you know, going to school in the military is eight, you know, eight hours a day, six days a week. So, you know, going to college and taking underwater basket weaving and toothpick sculpture was pretty damn easy after that. Uh, so I, I started from scratch all the way from trigonometry and worked my way all the way back up through uh, calculus and physics and became an electrical engineer. I went and worked for uh, General Dynamics. Uh, undergrad, and then I got my master's and was working for Hughes Aircraft. And then Hughes Aircraft back in '94 laid off uh, 40,000 out of 80,000 employees. Uh, I was on the team that worked on the the Raptor program, the YF-22 Raptor, and you know we worked uh, around the clock, 365 days, uh, just to find out we were getting laid off. <laughs> so um, I was looking for a Plan B, and I was taking a scuba course. And I ran into uh, uh, one of my program managers, the scuba instructor, and one of the students was a patent attorney that worked for Hughes Aircraft. And I said, hey, what's a patent attorney? He's like, well, uh, you got to be an engineer and you got to go to law school. I said, okay, well, I'm an engineer. I said, what's law school? He said, four years during the day, you know, three years, or three years during the day, four years at night. So I said, okay, three, four-year commitment. And then I asked him a question that's kind of rude. I said, uh, you know, how much money are you making? 
and he was making twice as much as I was. And and right there, I said, you know, I've I've, I've always been very decisive my whole entire life. I, you know, I, I sort of evaluate and then execute. So right that second, I said, I'm going to become a patent attorney, and I started studying for the patent bar. And, and 20 years later, here I am um, helping startups, universities, and small inventors, the market that nobody wants. <laughs> but uh, it is my passion, and I, I am a very technical guy. And, and the way I got in aquaponics was I was on Facebook one day, and I, somebody posted a little infographic of a little aquaponics system, and I looked at that and I go, damn, that looks really, really cool. And, you know, like I said, I, I'm very decisive, so I immediately started reading everything I could on aquaponics. And when, within three months, I had my first uh, grow beds up. And that's how I started. <laughs> very cool, man. So um, was that kind of your introduction into permaculture as well? Uh, was it kind of like those two things kind of merged together? Because I know you're into the, the whole world of permaculture as well. Well, you know, I t uh, actually, uh, aquaponics led me to permaculture. And, and the interesting thing is I, I, I wish I would have started with permaculture first. But as it turns out, I never would have found permaculture without, you know, aquaponics. So it's sort of like the chicken and the egg issue. Uh, uh, one of your, uh, one of your um, what's, what's our term? Not customers. One of your, your uh, fans uh, turned me on to your podcast uh, and he's at, he was actually big into permaculture, and he uh, gifted me the Jeff Lawton uh, 20 DVD set. So I went through that. It's a hell of a gift, man. That's, that's you owe that guy a beer. <laughs> oh, oh my God, that dude. Yeah, it, it's you know he he really opened my eyes in a lot of things. You know, besides permaculture. Uh, but yeah, I went through the Lawton DVD, and and I took the test, and and I still need to do a design to get certified, but. I'll, you know, I'm still waiting to find the right design. It's probably going to be at my house. Uh, but yeah, if, if I would have taken permaculture first, the system probably would look a lot different. Um, but you know, it is what it is. And, and you know, I, I started in aquaponics and then into permaculture, so that's how I ended up where I am now. So your system uses something called the Chinese solar greenhouse. Um, all greenhouses are solar, or they they wouldn't have any light. So, exactly what makes this the Chinese, or what what is what is that all about? Well, you know, you probably heard the term Earthship. Sure. Uh, I like giving credit where credit is due. The Chinese invented this a long, long time ago, a few hundred years ago. Uh, what they would do is they would dig a hole in the side of a mountain facing south, and they would cover that hole with a piece of plastic. And they would angle the plastic uh, at the perfect angle for the winter solstice sun so that it makes a 90-degree angle during the winter solstice sun. And what they would do is they would get some of these 55-gallon barrels and they would stack them on the inside north wall. Uh, as it turns out, water is an incredibly awesome heat battery. Uh, so they actually calculated how many barrels of water you needed to keep a given volume at a certain temperature all year round. So basically, they, they cover the hole with plastic. They put the you know they put the the the, the 55 gallon barrels painted black and full of water inside in the back wall, and then at night they take a blanket and cover the plastic to, to retain the heat. And the way it works is where when the sun is at its lowest point in the sky, it makes a 90 degree angle with the plastic, and all that heat energy gets captured by the water uh, barrels, which act as a battery. 
and then at night when they cover up the uh, the plastic, all that heat energy gets released back into the greenhouse. These guys are growing vegetables with four feet of snow outside. Uh, if you go to my OU812 Facebook and YouTube pages, you can see videos of my greenhouse with four feet of snow outside, and I got tomatoes fruiting inside. I got catfish. Uh, I used to have tilapia, but I'm running only catfish now because I don't want to heat the water. But uh, basically, that's the concept. You know, it's 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 the greenhouse effect. You know, just like if you park your car, uh, you know, on a winter day facing south, it'll get 100 degrees inside there because all that heat energy is getting captured inside of that that small structure. Uh, so that's uh, what the Chinese came up with, and that's really a different. It's uh, the difference between a regular greenhouse, which doesn't really uh, use the heat battery mechanism, versus uh, a passive solar greenhouse or a Chinese solar greenhouse or an Earthship design. Now they were using Earth, right? And you're yes. you're like that's that's great if you have a properly oriented hillside that you can dig a hole into. Yes. Right, so you're taking a little bit different approach with yours to get the same effect without necessarily having to be able to do an earth structure, correct? That's right. I didn't have a hill facing south. I had a property that faced south, and uh, I happened to go to a festival called Burning Man. I've been to just I've only been one time, uh, but I've also been to a lot of the regional uh, Burning Man festivals, and basically. We go camping, <laughs> you know, that's that's the basic festival. And they were doing these things at these festivals that were very interesting to me as far as structures. They were making these things called hexa yurts. I don't know if you've heard of these. Uh, what you do is you get some of this uh, R23 thermoshield panels. I don't know if you've seen it. It's got aluminum, on, aluminum foil on each side, and it's about, it can be an inch or two inches thick of, like, styrofoam material. I know exactly and what you mean. Yeah, it's used inside of houses for insulation, basically. So what they do is they take these panels and they configure them in sort of like an octagon, and they make these structures that you can take in the winter or the summer. They retain the heat perfectly. So I started looking at that, and I said, wow, that's the perfect insulator since I don't have an earth-sheltered design that I can you know, execute. So what I did being an engineer, and I mean, I, you know, I kludge things, you know, I, uh, I would say, you know, I call it engineering in action, <laughs> you know, you, you know, engineers solve problems. And I go, well, how the heck do I make this, this greenhouse? Well, I had found the panels and I needed a structure. And um, in our backyard, we have a 10 by 20 carport that you can buy from Home Depot for like 90 bucks. I don't know if you've seen them. It's basically a, a frame made out of one inch cubes. Uh, it's like an A-frame, and you put a, a tarp over top of it, and you've got a portable carport. I know yeah, exactly what you mean. I'm about to buy one for a boat because I don't want to have to try to get it into my garage, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I took one of those 10 by 20s, and what I did is I structured it with one-inch PVC, and I extended the A part of the frame an extra three feet because I wanted to get that 71-degree angle on the front glazing, which is triple-pane polycarbonate. So picture a carport that's completely covered in two-inch thermoshield, uh, east, west, north, top, you know, all the walls except the south. And the south wall is basically triple-pane polycarb at the perfect angle for your latitude for the winter solstice sun. As it turns out, I'm here in northern Virginia. It was around, I think, uh, 70 degrees or so, 69 or 70. So basically, I extended the A part of the frame. I completely enclosed it in, in this thermoshield. I added the uh, triple-pane polycarb. 
And then what I did is I took some of these, uh, there's these vent openers that don't require any electricity. There are these wax-filled wax cylinders that as they heat up, they open and close uh, greenhouse windows. So what I did is I put vents along the lower south of the structure and up on the upper north of the structure. So I basically built a structure that requires no ventilation at all. It's all passive ventilation. And it, it keeps the greenhouse, uh, I've never had it go below 60 degrees, even with, uh, you know, minus 10, 20 degrees outside. It's very cool. I was looking at your videos on it, and I haven't seen all of them, so maybe you've addressed this, but it kind of just looks like it's just that two-inch stuff. Like, how did you attach it? How is it, you know, held in place? Are you using that tarp at all? I, I really can't tell. Well, you know, I, I you know, Something that has been sort of almost a, a, a grounds for divorce is I'm an engineer, okay? Yeah. With me, function or form always follows function. If something doesn't work, I don't care how good it looks Sure. as an engineer. My wife, she could care whether it works or not as long as it looks good. I understand that. So, so, so you know, when I built that thing, I put it together. Have you ever seen that, that tar paper that's aluminum with tar on the bottom that's used to seal up air conditioning ducts? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I, I taped the whole entire thing with that. And it, it was working okay, except in the summertime, it got so hot that these things would start dripping off the walls. Yeah. So what I end up doing is I end up getting some of this. Uh, actually, I end up going to the tape that they use to make these hexayurts, which is this. Uh, it's a poly. What is it? It's like a. It's a tape that has uh, fiberglass filaments running through it. And uh, last summer I went through and taped it all up. But what really needs to happen is I need to have a carpenter come in. I'm not a carpenter, by the way. Not yet. Uh, I need somebody just come in and frame the thing. You they know, put now a shell, an outer, outer shell on it. Yeah, I got you. So it is what it looks like. It's pretty much just those panels held to the frame. <laughs> yes. Okay, okay. And it, but it works. I mean, that's yeah, – I saw one of your videos where you've got, like, gale force winds going, and it's holding together. So, yeah, I mean – You know, it survived a couple of directos. It survived four or five feet of snow. It's going on its fifth year. I've got a five-year-old catfish in there that's, that ate all my tilapia. Uh, he's humongous. They'll do that. <laughs> yep. well, you know, I, I read that you, 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 you can breed the tilapia and the catfish to keep the tilapia in check because the tilapia breed like crazy. You know, they'll, they'll put out like a thousand babies every six weeks or something like that. So if you don't have something to take care of that, you know, that overpopulation, you know, you'll, you'll overpopulate your tent. So the idea is to have like, the channel cats and the, and the tilapia sort of living together. The mistake that I made was that I, I wanted the catfish to breed. And while I was waiting to breed, I let them get too big. Uh-huh. And one day he's going in there, I'm like, damn, where's all my fingerlings? I had like 40 or 50 tilapia. They are probably around six inches or so. It was like my, my second generation. And all of a sudden, they're all gone. And, you know, the big guy is getting fatter and fatter. And then I kind of figured out what had happened. <laughs> uh, it was a blessing in disguise because now I don't run a heater. You know, catfish are, are native species here. So they kind of did me a favor. I like catfish. You know, uh, I'm not building the system to produce. You know, I'm not like uh, trying to make money off of it or anything. It's just really, you know, trying to provide extra food for the family. Uh, I do want to permaculture my yard. I've got a half acre, you know, this, this grass. So, um, 
you know, the, what I'm going to get out of the permaculture is I want to start making some raised beds and, some, and growing stuff outside of the greenhouse. Uh, the greenhouse only has about 25 square feet of hydro. So, you know, it's enough probably for one person, but, uh, you know, you couldn't feed a family of four off of it. Gotcha. So you're doing aquaponics in here. When someone asks you what that is, how do you explain aquaponics? Well, you know, it's, it's really simple. It's the combination of, of uh, aquaculture and hydroponics. Um, I think the, you know, the advice that I would give people, you know, you know, I've killed a lot of fish, and, and you see a lot of people that go in aquaponics and kill a lot of fish, you know. Um, if I could go back in time, you know, and give myself advice, uh, I would say, you know, get a pond, get the, the filtration for the pond going, get the fish working. Uh, the fish is the hard part, in my opinion, you know, the water chemistry, the pH, you know, taking care of the fish and having them be healthy, I believe, is the most difficult part of aquaponics. And then once you have a working pond with a working filter, uh, and by the way, you can make these filters. Uh, my filter is a, de- a do-it-yourself filter that works incredibly well uh, for a 1,000-liter for a pond, 400 gallons. Um, you know, once you get the once you get the pond filtered and working, then you can worry about adding grow beds. Because actually, you know, a mistake that I made at the beginning, which is a mistake that I think a lot of people make in aquaponics, is trying to create what's called a balanced system. <laughs> the problem with a balanced system is that you need so much growth space because the fish poop so much. You know, a little 400-gallon uh, aquarium fully stocked, could generate easily thousands of square feet of, of hydro space. So unless you have the room to put all that hydro space to filter the water, you're going to end up having uh, problems with your fish. So uh, the approach is sort of uh, what I consider sort of the next generation of aquaponics is this concept of decoupled aquaponics, which I find sort of funny. You know, aquaponics started from aquaculture, plus hydroponics. Decoupled, guess what? It's aquaculture plus hydroponics. No, it makes sense. And I'll, I'll tell you, the way I look at it is, I, what people don't understand is to run an aquaponics system, from the fish side, you have to overstock it. That's, that's it's, it's mandatory. If you don't overstock it, you can't run any significant grow bed space. And then when you do overstock it, the amount of grow bed space you need to accommodate the overstocking is, we'll just call it impressive. And yes. so my personal experience in the last year as I've moved into aquaponics is I've done some stuff with ebb and flow. It's worked pretty good. I've done some stuff with deep water. It's worked pretty good. But the the easiest thing that I've found to do is to balance the system with filtration or stocking yes. rate and then run the water through wicking beds and grow yes. the freaking plants in soil. And when the plant's yes. like, I'd like some more nitrogen, please, you just throw a little organic solid fertilizer on there. It's not going to whack out your water because the soil's going to hold it. And, and that's that just seemed to be, yep. like, so simple. And I don't know if you'd call it earthponics or whatever, but and, and don't get me wrong. I still have ebb and flow in my system. I'll always want it there because it does so much from a biology standpoint. But from a production standpoint, I've just been finding that, like, plants actually like to grow in soil. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it, it makes total sense. In fact, you know, uh, you know, speaking of 
wheat, for example, uh, you know, soil-based growing is huge. You know, it's, it's sort of, a lot of it is, I don't know if it's the stigma of hydro is worse than soil or whatever, you know. But uh, what they're doing is they're doing uh, non-ebb and flow, wicking beds, like you say, where basically you just have uh, a constant flow, um, you know, a constant flow through the media, and then you have like a burlap um, uh, divider, and then you have soil. But the water doesn't go back into the, um, well, the way, the way they do it is they, 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 when, they put, when they add nutrients, they put enough that it doesn't get into the water. So yep. it is sort of still coupled. Yep. But, you know, the only problem with that is I guess if you put too much nutrients, you could get it into your fish loop and yeah. then kill your fish. I think the better approach is just to have the filtration separate and have yeah. the water going one direction, like you said. We've done that, too. The problem is I'm a teaching facility, so I have students that come here and they play with things, and then they screw up the float valve, and then you, you get it flooded. So, like, what I ended up doing was just basically running it, just think of it as a deep water bed, um, yeah. with it set lower. Uh, so you got a, you know, a PVCT there with an overflow, and then right. you fill that with lava rocks, great, because you have right. all that surface area biology there. And then I put down like a two-inch layer of um, perlite instead of right. using a weed blocker because it's permanent. It's not going to ever break down with oh, some, some wicking stuff through the perlite down into the rock. And then your soil layer, and I'm using 150-gallon poly uh, stock tanks from Tractor Supply. So they're two feet nice. deep. So you've got a good 18 inches of soil. So if you're fertilizing with solid fertilizer on the top, it just ain't going in the water. But you've got a constant flow through there of your water then. So that's, that's, now the soil with weed, it's interesting you brought this up. So I watch all kinds of crap on, on, on YouTube and I was recently watching some stuff on YouTube and I saw like an associated video and it was like an aquaponics video. And of course it's like hydro marijuana stuff. And that led me to this thing called the weed show, which is just some chick out in California basically getting wasted because it's legal out there <laughs> while she interviews people. And I wasn't that interested until I realized that the episode that, that came up was how to grow your own weed. Uh, from seed or from clones, and they have these guys that, you know, they're part of the medical industry and the recreational industry, and they actually sell starts, because apparently, I didn't know this, but now you can legally grow your own pot in California up to, like, four plants or something. Oh, wow. So they were talking about how to do this. I'm like, well, I'd like to cultivate anything. I'd like to know. And she was sure. asking them, should you start with hydro or should you start with soil? And they said soil, and the big reason I never thought of it is soil's a natural pH buffer. Oh, so nice. when, you draw, when you're trying to do weed or probably anything in a hydro environment, you're constantly jacking around with your pH, where right. the soil itself is a natural pH buffer, and it's less critical, and it makes things a lot easier. That's just an aside, but when you mentioned weed, that's like, I was like, yeah, I remember. It's, it's actually pretty funny if you watch this show. This, this chick starts out baked, and like by the uh -huh. end of the show, she is... Like her guests will usually partake a little bit too, but by the end of the thing, she's freaking flat out roasted. And she starts out very articulate, and by the end, she's just getting through it. What's it called? It's called The Weed Show. I've got to check that out. It's, yeah. Um, anyway, so what, what drove you into aquaponics? You said you saw a diagram or something like that, but what, what, like, you know, what really attracted you? Like you said, like, this is something I'm going to anchor down and learn. Well, you know, it's, it's funny. It's like I always have to have a project that's not related to work. Oh, I understand. Um, before, before I did aquaponics, I was growing 
I was trying to do the holy grail. I was trying to grow morale mushrooms. And, um, you know, there's patents that cover how to do it, but they don't really give you the secret sauce. <laughs> you know, they, they kind of tell you at a high level what's needed, but that's a trade secret that's very, very well guarded. My understanding is there's operations up in Oregon, uh, warehouses that are growing morel mushrooms um, that that are guarded, you know, with like armed guards. Well, if you look <laughs> at what they cost, you can understand why. Forty bucks a pound. Yeah. You know? uh, so, you know, being an engineer, I, I built a little, uh, you know, one of these little hobby greenhouses. They're like two feet wide by four feet tall, and they got a couple shelves, uh, and they're covered in plastic. I had one in my basement. And I use some of this software called HomeSear that lets you turn uh, switches on and off. And I have this thing programmed for humidity, temperature, light. I even made like a rainfall generator because I had heard that the morels grow after heavy rainfall and if there's a fire. You know, so I'm sitting there trying, basically trying to simulate nature. Uh, I had an air conditioner hooked up to it. <laughs> Because they fruited around 50 to 65 degrees and 95% humidity. I had the humidity nailed. I had the light. I had the water. I had everything. I just couldn't get the greenhouse cold enough. So I got the mycelium to completely colonize, but I couldn't get it to fruit. And of course, it almost led to a divorce because, you know, I had spent, I don't know, I had pressure cookers and, you know, I had made like a flow hood. And, you know, I dropped at least two grand or so or more, probably more like five grand if I added up just on equipment, you know, to, for mushroom experiments. And after, you know, I gave up on the morels, I still needed a hobby. And, of course, trying to convince my wife that I was going to build something else <laughs> after the morels wasn't, you know, it, it, didn't, it didn't fly too well. But, you know, you, you know the saying, it, it's better to beg for forgiveness and ask for permission. Yeah. <laughs> so I went to Home Depot and I, I wanted to build a system that I could build from scratch from Home Depot. So literally that system that you see in my backyard, every single component except the air pumps uh, came from Home Depot. Gotcha. And, and you know, uh, so I was looking for that project and, and, and there I saw that aquaponics thing and I was like, man, that looks so darn cool. And, you know, I documented everything. I mean, I, I found the first post that I did. Um, I actually have the post of, of, the, um, uh, of, of, the, of the graphic. I think it was like December 15th of, of 2012 or something like that. And at, that was the exact point that I started researching. And my first grade bed went up March 2013. So, you, you know, you, you, I've heard people say they've been researching for five years, you know, before they build their system. I can't wait that long. I'm like, you know, once I latch on to something, it's going to get done, you know, for better or for worse. And, and sure enough, you know, by, by March, I had my first grow bed up. Uh, there's a pretty sort of epic picture of me laying in a hammock. After I had all six grow beds up, I had my fish in. And it was just such a nice feeling to just see the whole entire thing working, you know. And it's been really the best hobby I've ever had. You know, I, I'm electrical engineer. I wasn't into biology. Uh, you know, if you would have told me I was going to be a farmer, you know, you know, 50 years ago, I would have laughed at you. 
Uh, but you know, here I am. You know, I, I love it. I love gardening. Uh, I want to. I want to permaculture my yard. I'm gonna have to do it very, very slowly because my wife sort of has. Uh, it sounds like you burn a lot of burn a lot of uh, social capital there. You gotta you gotta tread lightly on that that world. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna seek it a fruit tree here and there, you know, and, and see. I, I figure if I do it super slowly, she won't notice. Yeah, and and she won't listen to this podcast, so I think I'll be okay. <laughs> well, and you can do it cheap, right? Because I mean, you can pick fruit trees up for twenty, thirty bucks. Um, yeah. You can get cardboard for free from Walmart if you should go go in the morning, and and some mulch and you, a few soil amendments. And I mean, you can kind of just slowly expand doing that and stick to trees at first and sheet mulching. And we we've learned here our big we've done you know high input low input stuff and it's all worked. And it isn't that some of it hasn't worked better, but bang for the buck both financially and energy. Sheet mulching has been like the number one thing you can do. Just wow. just lay it down, you know, block the weeds out, give it a little bit of uh, we use uh, horticultural molasses, the dried horticultural molasses, a uh-huh. little bit of rock minerals like some zeolite or uh, not zeolite, uh, whatever the hell it is called, the white stuff, and then maybe some green sand and some lava sand, and uh, just layer of compost, layer of mulch, leave it alone for a few months, plant into it. I mean. And you can plant right away, but we just found like kind of giving it some time to let all that biology start going. And we have we have spots that we did that four years ago. There's still no weeds growing there because we wow. sow up the fertility. The weeds are just like we don't. We're going to go over here where pioneering needs to be done, and we just have phenomenal growth in those areas. And yeah, what what's the term in public permaculture where you um, you outcompete, right? You put in yeah. the, the organisms that you want, and that outcompetes the weeds, and they go to where the greener pastures are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, having the ducks there to, to nip it off is, is a good thing too. But just the areas we did the sheet mulching, and you look at them still today, and there'll be grass coming up, but there won't be any of the of the kind of the noxious weeds that we have around here, like uh, prickly lettuce or thistle or any of those things, or sand burrs, which are just a hateful, horrible. Thing that you guys don't have in the Northeast, you're lucky. Um, there's there's pictures of people with sandbars still in their camping gear from like a year ago when they camped out <laughs> here. Um, and and you know the areas we sheet mulch, they just don't exist. So that's a good way where, to get by on that. <laughs> where are you located again? What's that? Where where are you located again? North North Central Texas. I'm near Fort okay. Worth. Yeah. Ah, cool. Yeah. The sandbar exists like from here all the way to Florida, all the way up to like. Carolinas, but I don't think you really have to deal with them where you're at. Not much, anyway. Florida, they like, you know, they just grow everywhere. They grow on your roof. Um, <laughs> uh, so anyway, you also do work with uh, in your stuff with black soldier flies. Do you kind of have them rigged up as like an auto feeder? Yeah, you know, I I was watching a video on YouTube of some you know the Australians, are, in my opinion, are the the pioneers in, in aquaponics. You know, they've been doing it for so long. Uh, the original forum I joined was this one called Backyard Aquaponics. A lot of Aussie guys. Um, and through one of the forums, somebody was mentioning black soldier flies, and they started poking around. And I found a video of an Aussie dude that was feeding, I think they call them chucks in, in Australia. Yeah. Uh, he was feeding his chucks with black soldier flies, and he just built this like wooden box where... Um, the, the larvae would crawl up this ramp and fall into a bucket. Uh, not even a bucket, a gutter, basically, a rain gutter. 
and the chickens would just eat right out of the rain gutter. And I looked at that and I go, damn. So I started reading about black soldier flies, and I mean, that's something, you know, sort of with me. It's like once I find something, I research, 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 just read as much as I possibly can. So I started reading about black soldier flies and found out they're like one of the most efficient composters on earth. You know, they don't have a stinger, they don't have a mouth part, they only live to breed. You know, the, the larvae will naturally crawl up a 45 degree angle. Uh, they can be converted into biodiesel, they can convert feces. Um, they're really incredible creatures. So I saw that, I'm going, damn, I'm gonna build myself an auto fish feeder. So, you know, went to Home Depot, got one of these, you know, 30 gallon totes, uh, threw a ramp in there, and the, the larvae would crawl right into the fish tank. Uh, I killed my colony last year because I made the mistake of putting coffee. Uh, I drink an espresso every morning, and I was putting all my coffee grounds uh, in with the um, in with the compost. And I was also, you know, black soldier flies will process citrus, but something that I read later was pH. <laughs> you know. Uh, I made I made the their bedding material so acidic I basically wiped out the colony. Ah. Uh, the system was working very very well. Uh, there's an article buried somewhere in my aquaponics page that's sort of like composting on steroids, where you do worms on the bottom and black soldier flies on the top, because that as it turns out the black soldier fly can't process cellulose, which apparently the worms can. So supposedly when you combine uh, the red wrigglers with the black soldier flies, you get like sort of composting squared. So I just ordered about 5,000 red wrigglers that should be arriving shortly, and I'm getting ready to get another colony of, of soldier flies, and I'm going to see if I can do sort of like a, a mixed bed, you know, where I have both uh, worms and uh, soldier fly, and the ramp goes right into the fish tank. So as the larvae crawl out, uh, they crawl into the fish tank. I also have a collection bucket underneath. Uh, there's some videos and pictures uh, in, um, in the aquaponics page. It shows, you know, how much you get out of it. It's just incredible how much you can really get in this larvae. As it turns out, the larvae is like something like 38% protein, 23% fat, something like that. It's, it's basically it rivals high-end fish feed. Uh, there's a lady out of Holland that is making human food out of it. Um, you can actually survive off of these larvae. Uh, and, and once I started reading that stuff, I'm like, you know, hey, you know, you can, you can do this and you can supplement your fish feed. Um, the other thing that's sort of interesting besides the, you know, I'm trying to incorporate as much as I can into my system to try to not have to buy uh, fish feed. Uh, as you know, catfish will pretty much eat anything. So any leaves that I trim for my plants go into the tank, and they, they chomp on those. Uh, right now, I don't have any fish food. I actually have uh, some dog food that I throw inside of my uh, auto fish feeder. I have a little homemade plastic bottle um, with a little uh, wire at the bottom that the fish pull on when they want to feed themselves. Um, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to supplement as much as I can and the interesting thing about my system is it runs completely from air. It does not have any water pumps at all. So I've never had a problem with dissolved oxygen. And as a result of that, I can grow as much algae and duckweed as I want. 
Uh, most people in aquaponics are trying to kill algae. As it turns out, algae is very high in omega-3 fatty acids, which cultured fish happen to be lacking because they're not getting that. So I'm sitting there reading that, and I'm like going, people are killing algae when the fish could eat the algae, and the algae gives them omega-3 fatty acids. So uh, the filter that I built uh, um, is sort of unique. It's a, it's a, I don't know if you've heard of a, a radio flow settler. It's a radio flow settler that doesn't really work like a radio flow. I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, are you familiar with soil filters and radio We do. Now, I'm not really sure if we're talking about the same type of technology. I do basically a cone-shaped solid separator in my... Yeah. Some, so the water comes in the bottom of my, I guess it's a sump, I, because I can't dig a hole. I don't have a true sump. Right. But my, my, my heart of my system is a 38-gallon uh, food grade, looks like a garbage can, but it's not a garbage can. I remember where right. I got it from. And then I got two 330 IBCs on each side of it. That pump sits in that round thing, and at the bottom of it, there is a, a, a forced uh, metal cone inside there underneath it the the pump sits right on top of it so as water comes in the bottom of it it the pump is drawing stuff up it hits the sides of that cone and it filters to the bottom filters to the bottom filters to the bottom and you know about once every two weeks i open the bottom and take a few gallons of grade a fish crud out of there so that's that's the way my solids so that's what i'm familiar with Yeah, it's, it's a similar concept. Uh, in fact, uh, a, pr a proper radio flow settler is a cone bottom structure. So picture, uh, picture a cone bottom tube, you know, like you have, and picture inside of that tube uh, another tube. And what you do is you pump the water from the bottom through like a standpipe into the tube that's sitting inside of the cone bottom tube. And what happens is the water flows upward and then has to go back down again. So uh, what happens is the particles go upward and, and gravity forces them to fall back down. And when they fall back down, they fall back down very, very slowly and settle at the bottom of the cone. So it's a way of, of separating the solids in a way that sort of minimizes the damage that you do to the solids so you don't get them suspended within the liquid. So basically what you're doing is you're pushing water upward one tube, and then if the, the, the water can't go all the way to the top of the tube, so it reverses flow and goes back down. And what happens is all those particles settle to the bottom and get drained uh, through the bottom port, and that's what's called the radio flow settler. Now typically what you do is you have a settling tank followed by a hard filter, followed by a, um, they call them like a protein skimmer, I, I forget the right term, but basically you got aeration and bio balls that are sitting there, um, you know, degassing and, and getting all the, the nitrogen out. Well, I didn't have enough room in my little greenhouse for, you know, three gigantic buckets, you know, 20 gallon uh, tubs. So what I did is I modified the radio flow settler idea, what I did is, is the, the, the tube that sits inside of the cone bottom or the cone uh, section uh, is called the stilling well. That's where the water gets pushed up and falls back down. What I did is I took these filters called Metalla. There's a company, Metalla, that makes various grade hard filters. And what I did is I cut them in circle form so that the, the stilling well sits inside of these Metalla filters And then these filters are cut to the exact same diameter of the cone-shaped tube. So the whole thing just kind of pushes right into that, uh, that structure. 
And then what I did, which is sort of completely different, uh, in fact, it's the subject of a patent application that I just filed. Um, instead of, of letting the water sort of just pump in from the bottom with the water pump, I force it in from the top with a geyser pump. And a geyser pump is a type of pump that uses air to push water. It's like blowing through a straw, basically. So what I'm doing is I'm pushing the water out of the fish tank along with the solids, along with air, in, into the stilling well. And the thing is, is the water, the only way that it can get back out of the, that cone bottom container is through about two feet of metallofilters. And the metallofilters start from very coarse to super, super fine. So now picture the water now percolating up. You still got some solids now that are dissolved in the water that are coming up through the filters. But then what I did is on the very top level of the, um, of the metallic filters, I put some air stones and I'm growing duckweed and algae on top of that layer. So what happens is now as the water percolates up through the metallic filters, the algae and duckweed create sort of like a polishing filter. And then the overflow from that cone bottom filter goes through a sponge filter that then goes back into my fish tank. I'm getting about 230 TDS out of this thing. The water is crystal clear. And the interesting thing about duckweed and algae, it's an indicator of proper water chemistry. If the duckweed and the algae are thriving, it means that your water chemistry is good. In fact, they're using duckweed and algae to clean toxic waste sites. And and you know what I do is every once in a while I'll take some a few inches of duckweed and algae and I'll just throw it right into the fish tank and the fish eat that as well. So I've been trying to incorporate sort of the black soldier flies, the, the duckweed, the algae, and since the system runs completely from air, I don't have an issue with the algae killing my fish because of you know oxygen demand issues. Excellent. So that's, that's pretty good. So I was, I was worried about when you start talking about algae, and I grow a lot of duckweed, is if algae gets out of hand and you get an algal bloom and that water turns green, then all those fine particles are getting into fish gills and you have die-offs and things like that. But the algae itself isn't so much the issue like the surface algae, it's that suspended algae. So that's how you're dealing with that. Yeah, and the thing is, you know, the way my system is designed, since the grow beds are around the fish tank, Guess what? The fish tank is naturally shaded. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I did a video the other day of a catfish inside of my uh, of my tank. The water is crystal clear. I mean, it's it, it looks like drinking water. It's it's super super clear. Now, of course, the pond is dirty. You know, there's stuff growing on the bottom, and you know, it, it, it doesn't look super super clean. But from a, a water chemistry point of view, it's pristine. You know, it's you could probably drink it. I. I haven't, but, you know, without testing it, but it, it is pretty darn clean. And part of it is, you know, I don't have a tank overstocked, and I've got that 20-gallon uh, radio flow uh, duckweed RFS running, which is working very, very well. And then I got my six grow beds, which reach 30 gallons, doing additional filtering. So, yeah, the fish are, are pretty happy in there. Very cool. So one of the things I noticed in your notes that you sent me for this interview is that you patented your design. What made you decide to uh, actually patent your design? Well, well you know, I, I, I know the permaculture ethos, you know, and the open source sort of, of, of concept. But, um, you know, one thing that I've learned as a patent attorney, and, and you know, uh, there's a lot of anti-patent people out there. And, and the interesting thing about it is the people that are against patents are the ones that really need them. You know, the, the company, you know, 
The companies that don't want patents are the large corporations. A large corporation really doesn't need patents. They have enough money to outmarket you and outsell you. Uh, for example, uh, San Francisco was taking bids on wireless. Google said free. Now, how do you compete with free if you're a little startup? You know, and that's the problem is that the, the startup spaces that if they have technology and they don't protect it, they put it out there open source. They could get copied by a large corporation, and there's really nothing they can do. Now, even with the patent, you know, it, it's it's difficult, but it's basically, you know, at least having a potential tool to be able to do something. So, you know, being a patent attorney and and after designing my system. Uh, it's free for personal, non-commercial, and educational use. I want people to build these things. I'm teaching everybody I can how to build these things. What I don't want is somebody to copy the exact system and start selling them, because I think that would be very unfair unless they're going to give me a piece of the pie. And and that's the reason I patented it. And and that's the reason you know I continue to patent anything I develop that turns out to be novel. Now the interesting thing is, uh, you know, I gave, a, you know, I belong to a lot of aquaponics groups, and you know, people get patents, and everybody's up in arms. Somebody posted a patent, and everybody's like, "Oh, they're going to shut down our backyard systems," and blah blah blah. They don't understand that that you know, people aren't interested in shutting down backyard systems. They're interested in shutting down companies that are using patented systems. Not you know people in their backyard. So you know somebody had posted about some patent that somebody got, and everybody was up in arms. So I said, look, you guys, you know, I gave a free lecture on IP. Uh, in fact, both webinars are online uh, that I'm talking about. They're free for everybody. So I gave a free, uh, I think it was an hour and a half hour lecture on what are patents and how do you analyze a patent and you know what how do you, how do you look at a patent so you know whether you need to be concerned about it or not. And I didn't want to use somebody else's patent as an example because I don't want to be degrading somebody else's work. In other words,、uh, well, also from a legal point of view, you know, if I start commenting on somebody's patent as a patent attorney, you know, I could get sued because you know、uh, somebody could say, "Hey, you're you're you know you're disparaging my IP." You know, I'm going to take you to court. So what I did is I used my own patent application for the workshop. And I went, and it's an aquaponics, it's a Chinese solar greenhouse aquaponics system. So I went through and spent, you know, an hour and a half. I invited everybody that I could in the aquaponics community, and they led the presentation. So then I get my patent granted, and I go, I wanted to post the patent, not to brag, but just to tell everybody, hey, the patent got granted. Oh my God, I got so flamed. Everybody's like, oh, you know, you're just patenting stuff that everybody knows, and you know, you didn't deserve a patent. You're just, you know, taking other people's ideas. And, and I'm like going, you know, and, and this is the part that sort of got me. The same people that were telling me that my system sucked, that it was stupid, that I was doing it completely wrong, were <laughs> the same exact people that were complaining that I got a patent. And guess why I got the patent? Because there was a teaching away. A teaching away is when everybody says, "Oh, don't do it this way. You can't do it this way. You're stupid. You shouldn't do it that way," and you get it to work. Well, that that evidence can be used for patentability. And when I was talking to the patent examiner, I told them, I said, "Look, when I propose my system to everybody, they're like, 'Oh, no, no. You only use one water pump. You, you know, you never use more than you know, one water pump. Minimize energy.'" Well, you know, I was designing a system that was anyway redundant. I was trading off. 
energy uses for redundancy. And that's a fair trade-off. You know, it's an engineering trade-off. So yes, my system uses way more energy than using a single water pump. But guess what? What happens when your single water pump breaks? You know, you've got a single pump. Everything dies. That's what happens. Everything goes stagnant and freaking dies. Two is one, one is none. And, and you know what? I've seen so many pictures of people posting thousands of fish dead. I can't count how many times I've seen it. I have never had a massive fish death because my system runs from air. And the way geyser pumps work, once the water level gets to a certain point, they quit working, but they keep pumping air. So one day I went in, and one of my grow beds had leaked. I don't use a sump, by the way, because the way my geyser pump system is set up, I don't need a sump. Because uh, they're all firing separately. Think of it like pistons of an engine. Mm-hmm. You know, they're never, all the beds are never filling up and dumping at once, which, by the way, happens when you have a single water pump. So that's why you need a sump. So, so I don't need a sump. And one day, one of my bell siphons leaked, and I lost like three feet out of my, you know, I had about a foot and a half left in my, in my 400-gallon tank. But guess what? The geyser pumps was, were still pumping air. They weren't pumping water anymore, so the leak was stopped automatically, but they were still pumping air, so I didn't have a fish deck. And, and that, that system has saved me twice so far in five years. I've had something like that happen where I could have killed all of my fish, but thank God for the fact that I run off of air. They're still alive. But yes, I'm the idiot that doesn't deserve a patent because I didn't use a single water pump. You know, it's probably not likely to happen with this, but I can tell another reason that people should patent things. What happens sometimes is someone will invent something really cool. They won't patent it because they want the world to have it. So since they don't patent it, a company that doesn't want it to be on the market will patent it and then claim ownership of it and then never produce it. And, and that has happened more than a few times in history. I, I can't remember There's exactly the name of it. There is a specific type of boat, boat hole um, that, that was specifically patented and then done away with, and it, it's never been made. You know, well, you know, the, I, you know, as a patenter, I can give you lots of examples of that. You know, uh, I, I had a, a, a friend, a college, or somebody that was a potential client. Uh, the guy was at out of MIT. He invented this thing called light glove. It was an infrared transmitters that you attach to your fingers that could literally model your hand down to like the nanometer level. So he could, he could generate an exact model of your fingers with this thing called light glove. And he has demos of himself playing the piano in the air, just with his fingers. He went to Logitech, he went to all the big companies, and guess why they don't want to, you know, if they, if they buy his patent, you know what they're going to do with it? They're going to put it on a shelf. And this is the reason patents are important. You know, the reason they'll put it on a shelf is, Logitech is not going to get rid of their mouse business. I mean, could you imagine Logitech all of a sudden switching to hand-controlled, you know, uh, a glove that you wear instead of a mouse? They would wipe out their entire mouse division. So that is the problem with technology. You know, uh, right now I've got an inventor from Finland that's invented a sustainable uh, lawnmower for for, uh, golf courses. It's fully sustainable, you know, recharges itself, runs off the sun, doesn't use electricity, electric motors. Why is John Deere and everybody else still pushing, uh, you know, uh, internal combustion? Because they don't want to retool all that stuff. I mean, I can see their point of view also. It doesn't make business sense for them all of a sudden to switch to all electric. So what happens is the the reason patents are important is because they force technology to emerge. 
you know, this little inventor from Finland is going to come here and he's going to introduce these lawnmowers that are going to displace the market for John Deere. Well, what is John Deere going to do then? Well, they're going to have to enter that market. And, and that's why, you know, patents are important and that's why we need that technology. But again, I just patented my system just because I didn't want it copied. You know, I, I didn't want... And, I, and again, I, didn't, I don't care if it's copied by you, by people that are using it educationally, by people that are growing food. I just don't want somebody making a business. Well, and you wouldn't be, ways. you wouldn't because it's it's completely unenforceable that way. You just can't, you can't do it. It's like playing whack-a-mole with 500 yeah. million moles for no gain whatsoever. Because, well, like, think about it. Th think about think about how this transfers into the plant world. So, you know, Isons will come out with a brand new patented uh, muscadine vine, and they'll say right. you cannot replicate this plant without paying our patent fee. And all. so, if you go out and you set up a backyard nursery and you start advertising, like at a catalog level, that you're doing exactly that. You're doing their patented whatever. Um, sure, that that could result in some sort of a, a cease and desist yeah. or shutdown or lawsuit. If you're in your backyard and you're cutting the tip off a vine and rooting it and throwing it in next the next one down the line, no one gives the square root of f all. No one's going to do anything, and it would be cost prohibitive to do so. So exactly. these types of patents don't really affect the DIY person because no one really cares and. Frankly, when someone starts DIYing something, what they end up is with is never what you had in the first place because they end up customizing it and changing things around anyway. But, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think that for small people to say, well, I want everybody to be able to do this, well, then you better patent it. And then, you, then as the patent owner, if you want to make it free-for-all, you can do so, but what it prevents is anybody else coming out, grabbing a hold of it, and then saying, well, you can't do that. And... I think people that are onerous with stuff like that, they always get, you know, blowback. If you think of the Dervais family, I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but they decided to trademark Urban Urban Homestead. Yeah, I heard and, about that. And Urban Homesteading. And they went from being like rock stars of the movement to being pariahs, like yeah. overnight. Uh, and, and the EFF, Electronic Freedom Foundation, got involved. And they went after Kelly Corn, and I can't think of her co-author. They're, they're married, but they have different last names. And uh, of Root Simple is their site because they had written a book called Urban Homesteading. Oh my god! And they went to Google with their trademark and said they wanted them delisted from Google resort results because they were in violation of their trademark. And the book was written four years before the trademark was filed. <laughs> and of course, they lost in the end. And and they came out with the story of well, we just wanted to protect the word or whatever, um, kind of like I was saying here, but. Well, then why are you sending takedown notices to, like, backyard mom bloggers? So I think people yeah. that trademark stuff or patent stuff like this, if they go out and mess with the little guy, it never works out well for them anyway. So, I, like, why did you – like, we kind of talk about why you – what are you going to do with your patent? Are you actually going to do anything with it or – Well, you know, actually, as it turns out, I have, uh, you know, um, I have a client that, that uh, very, very successful in the software industry – that was looking for a venture, um, and I showed him my aquaponics system, and he goes, I'm going to do it. And he built a 10,000-square-foot indoor hydro park in uh, Connecticut. Um, and it based, you know, based on, I mean, it's, it's not based on my patent, but he's somebody that could... Uh, potentially use the patent as sort of in a commercial way, you know, um, 
So that sort of a plan is either uh, actually one of the you know one of the plans I'm thinking about. Uh, I live very close to D.C. and I'm thinking of maybe making some um, some grow rooms based on the patented system. Um, and I'm thinking you know maybe like even like Thermoshield and Velcro, where you just slap it together. You know, and and, and uh, it has the ventilation and, and the the vent openers and a tank and and uh, you know runs off of air and maybe a little solar panel and a and a battery. Uh, the latest patent uh, I filed for covers the concept of a hybrid air battery system. You know, where the 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 solar panel instead of charging a battery fills up an air tank. And when the air tank goes down, you know, the solar panel would kick on the air pump. Uh, and, and I would also have a battery there for some additional storage. So I'm looking at the concept of like a, maybe like a scuba tank and a, and a, and a little battery and maybe uh, a small solar panel, um, uh, you know, to run the system. Uh, the other thing I'm thinking about based on the design, since it is very modular, you could drop these into ponds or rivers. You know, the thing runs off of an air pump, right? So you could literally take a, a grow bed that has a, a geyser pump attached to it, uh, a little 35-watt uh, solar panel and battery, and drop it into a creek or a lake or an existing koi pump as a module. Um, the whole design of the system is modular because of the redundancy. So, like, if you needed to aerate a koi pond, for example... You know, instead of spending a lot of money, you know, or, or you know, just instead of just adding aeration, why not add hydroponic grow beds that aerate at the same time, for example? So these are some of the things I'm thinking of. You know, whether I ever do it or not, who knows? You know, I mean, I I make my living as a patent attorney. Uh, this was just sort of like, you know, what kind of a patent attorney am I when I'm advising startups to protect their stuff, and I don't even protect my own stuff. You know, so so that was part of the reason of patenting it. Also, whether I do something with it or not, in the end, uh, wasn't as big as a concern as really, you know, just having the protection and, and being able to do it. Uh, patents do last 20 years, which is a lifetime, you know, in this sort of technology. So, you know, it, it may have some value to somebody down the road. You know, uh, off grid. I think for off grid, it's a great design. You know. Um, a modular off-grid design that, 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 you know, each little module has its own solar so, solar system uh, so that that way you have redundancy, I think, is a good design. What exactly is patented? Because is it the system as a total? Because then you, you can't patent. I have a thing with a 45-degree angle that a, a worm crawls up and crawls, falls into a fish tank. That's, that's well known. That's been done a hundred different ways. So is it the totality of the assemblage? Or what exactly is the patented on? There, you know, one of the webinars I give, if you search my name and the words lean IPR, L-E-A-N IPR, uh, that stands for intellectual property rights, lean IPR, you'll find the two webinars that I've done. The first webinar uh, is an IP 101 webinar. It covers the basics of intellectual property law. What's a trademark? What's a copyright? What's a patent? You know, when do you patent? When do you keep secret? That sort of stuff. Uh, the second webinar covers the nuts and bolts of the patent. Uh, that's where I go in and I analyze my own application. And I teach people what's a claim, you know, what is it, you know, what are the important parts of the patent, what are the important dates. So, you know, but but to answer your question in short form, the claim is the name of the game. 
You know, I've had so many clients come to me and they go, oh, I don't want to come into the United States because somebody has a patent, you know, cue scary music. Uh, and I'm like, well, have you looked at the patent? Do you know how to look at a patent? And, and it's not really that complicated. You know, I mean, the, the, there's, the, the patent is made up of three parts, the claims, the drawings, and the description. The description and the drawings go hand in hand. And the claims cover what you have to do to infringe the patent. So if you want to know what you need to do to infringe my patent, all you have to do is read the claim that was allowed. And the claim covers a Chinese solar greenhouse with a, 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 with a pond inside of the greenhouse with uh, multiple grow beds that are all run by individual air pumps. And that there is no water pumps employed. So it's a basically a 100% air-powered system inside of a Chinese solar greenhouse. And like I said, build away. You know, I want people to build them. I want people, you know, if they find value to build them. What I don't want is somebody copying it exactly and selling it. Gotcha. And if, and if they do, you know, I have a way to protect myself. I'm a patent attorney. I could sue people on my own. You know, I don't have to pay lawyers or whatever. You know, I could take somebody on on my own if I wanted to. Uh, not that I would, you know, but, you know, if it's some company or something, hell yeah. You know, if it's some, if it's some big company that turns around and starts cloning them, you know, and, and, you know, these companies won't even send you a thank you note, by the way. Uh, you'll just see your system somewhere, you know, like at a Home Depot or something, you'll go, fuck, that's what I invented. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what advice would you give to sustainable technology designers then? Well, you know, I, I, I think the, the advice that I would give right now, and this is, this is sort of is going to get into sort of the bigger picture. You know, uh, I've seen the patent laws get eroded to the point where, you know, I used to tell startups they've got a one in a thousand chance of making it. Well, now it's like one in 10,000. Uh, about six or seven years ago, 12 of the richest corporations on earth dropped around $800 million lobbying both sides of the aisles on something called the America Invents Act. I can tell you one thing. Anytime anything says America in it, yeah. I can guarantee it's a screw job. are getting screwed. If it says freedom, liberty, children, America, anything yes. like, like any kind of rosy word that everybody would put flowers in their pockets for, yeah, it's going to screw you. That's, that's, yes. just, yeah. Yeah, so the America Invents Act was us harmonizing our laws with Europe. And it's not a good thing. No. Because, because I'll tell you what, uh, in Europe, you can get attacked before, during, and after you file a patent. The only people that can afford to file patents are corporations. So literally, what they've done is they forced out all the startups out of the market because they just can't compete. And then here we go and harmonize with Europe by dropping $800 million, you know, $400 million on the left, $400 million on the right, Obama signed the bill, you know, uh, and, and to the detriment of the people that actually make the jobs. You know, corporations provide about 10% of the workforce. If we have a world where there's only corporations, guess what? 90% of us better be off-grid or something, you know, uh, or we're going to be dead. And... And, and that is sort of, you know, what I'm getting at to the next big thing is, you know, you know what a union is, right? You know why we started unions. 
You know, why do we start unions? We started unions because if we didn't have unions right now, your employer would say, guess what? You're going to work and we're going to give you a sandwich every day and take it or leave it. Okay? So, so we've gotten to the point now that we need to start what's called digital unions. And for example, if I could take all the people that are doing DIY aquaponics, for example, and instead of all playing the American dream of trying to become a Google, if we instead would form like a special forces team of inventors, I could come in and teach them how to write patents, and then we could file thousands of patents at once, and now we could behave like a corporation, and we could actually monetize this technology. And to tell you the truth, if this doesn't happen, we're not going to have startups in the next hundred years. And it's the concept of digital unions. That's the next big step is that we have to quit thinking of ourselves as individuals that, you know, we're going to do it alone. And then, we're, you know, we have to form teams. We have to do it. Well, I think what's going to happen there is they're going to basically what you would call techno anarchy is going to completely overrun the existing system anyway. So you're, you're going to run into decentralized autonomous organizations or DAOs where, like, we don't need a company to accomplish something. The, the company won't exist. The, the company, well, it's kind of like what you're talking about. Yeah, I don't know if I, the union is the word I would use to use it because... Associations, yeah, unions have a union, You know, unions were fine until they became enforceable through the state. So a union would, re, a pure union would be you and I and, and 20 other people work for this one company and we collectively bargain with that company that we work for. And we basically yeah, say... Yeah, that's not well, what I'm talking about. Yeah, we'll leave if, if you don't employ us and right, like right, right. well that's fine but when the government says well you can't hire around them you can't you know like basically the, the government forces the will of the union then it becomes something that a union never was meant to be I mean the original unions were guilds and it's the same thing in permaculture like you were talking about like if oh, I plant enough of one thing the other thing can't come in so if we had a fisherman's guild it limited how many fishermen would be on this coast so that we could control the price of fish right so like That's more like what a DAO is becoming, where you can't – back to enforceability, right? Why doesn't Ison's Nursery enforce their patent on a big red muscadine in the back of, you know, Carlos's backyard? Because it can't. Because they can't get their arms around it. So, like, why didn't the government shut down Bitcoin? Well, they tried, and then they realized there's, there is no Bitcoin, Right? There's, there's no place where you can go and go, I'm yeah. going to put a stop to this. It's a decentralized system. A swarm. Right? It's a swarm. So when you decentralize this type of thing, you're going to get into a point where I don't know if in 20 years a patent will be relevant because you're going to have such a speed of motion that when you're trying to protect something, like you say 20 years is a lifetime, I think 20 years is going to become pointless Because the speed of development will be going to the next level so fast that whatever somebody's holding on to with some sort of protectionism is going to be made irrelevant in you know a couple of years. I think that's where we're headed with a lot, not everything, but with a lot of things. You know, I mean, you know, what, what concerns me, for example, is like you know, I go to Finland and there's these guys developing sensors. Yeah, you know, there's a company out of Finland that has a gas, spec gas and solid spectrometer that's the size of a matchbox. You know, these things used to take up entire rooms. And it's unpatented. And what that means is that basically 
anybody can copy it. And, and the issue is not, you know, you copying it or me copying it or somebody in the backyard. The issue is like a large corporation or the Chinese coming in and mass producing it and flooding the market and driving that small startup out of the system. You know, so what I'm addressing is sort of how do tech companies survive now, whether, you know, the guild concept or what was the term used for the the decentralized... Uh, a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization. I mean, because, see, I'm not actually concerned about somebody doing it for less. Like, that's the market. What I'm concerned about is a large corporation patenting it because you didn't and then forcing the original producer out. Like, if you have to compete, you have to compete. That's the way I look at it. Um, and there's more than one way to compete. Price is one model. But when you, what I've seen happen to people is they were legitimately the originator of something, Some, some company with the resources maybe did one or two more things to it, patented it, and then shuts them down and says, you can't even make this anymore. We're the owner of that patent. It's, it's more of a self-defense thing I'm concerned with. But, but, let, but let me put this situation. If, if, if you're a wireless Internet provider and you're putting bids in for San Francisco and Google says free, how do you compete with that? You don't. You go find something else to do. I mean, I, I mean that. I, I if you, somebody wants to do something for free, fine. Yeah, but but, but but in a world where you know there's multiply large corporations, they're going to wipe everybody out in that system. You know, I, I you know I think the, the answer is the permaculture answer, right? Just don't consume, right? Yeah. I, I don't know what else to do at that point, but yeah, I mean it's. See, well, that's another example of. I would advise you know you know consider patenting something if you think it, it has value. I mean, the thing about having a patent is you can decide to give it away. You know, uh, what I do is I if somebody's sort of a serial designer or whatever, uh, I what I do my business model is I teach people everything I know. I teach people what I know so they can minimize my time because my time is the most expensive part, you know, of, of protecting technology. And I, I teach people. And, uh, you know, if people want to, you know, if people want to learn and have sort of that property, it is a property, right? And I know uh, if we get into politics, you know, um, you know, who owns property or whether property should even be owned. Maybe is a whole other question. Well, I think when you get into patent, right? So now there's a, there's a, there's a concept of property, and to me, um, if it is a thing, it can be property. If it's an idea, I actually I am a pragmatist. I understand the world we live in. I get the point of patenting something because of that. But from a, from a standpoint of uh, an overriding morality, saying that you own an idea to me is actually preposterous. And the reason I feel that way is that someone else can end up at the exact same point you did with no knowledge whatsoever of how you did it. Because there's only so many ways to do a thing. And kind of that purist reverse engineering has actually been used to circumvent patents. If you look at Microsoft, what, what Microsoft did was take what they called technology versions out of engineering school with no knowledge of the, the chipsets that Apple was using. And engineer something that did the exact same thing but got there down a different path, documented everything, and then Apple thought, oh, well, we're going to have to compete with Microsoft, so it'll be these two giants. And then Microsoft said, screw that. We don't give a damn about selling chipsets. All we care about is selling software because that's like printing money. 
And they and that's why you can get a PC made by 5,000 different people. And that's why I can buy a PC for $400 that does as much as my iMac, but yet I'll still buy an iMac if there's certain things that I want that Macintosh does better. And to me, that's an open market, where the, the concept that you can say, well, since this is my idea, I own it. I mean, again, I think if somebody just grabs what you've done and actually packages it, that's one thing. But the whole process, to me, pre-concludes pre that it is impossible for two people to get to the same place on their own, which history's shown us to be completely false. That's happened. In fact, the biggest innovations in history, you always end up with a winner that says they originated it. But when you look, it's almost like technology leads itself to certain natural progressions. And there's always three or four other people that did it independently that are always out there. And you know what's even worse now is is under the old patent laws, it was first to invent. Now it's first to file. Yeah. So under the under the old patent laws, if you're sitting in a garage and you come up with an idea before Google, right? And you make it and you get your you, you file your patent application, but they beat you to the patent office, you could show that you were working on it diligently and you could prevail. Well, through the American Events Act, because we harmonize with Europe, uh, now whoever runs to the patent office first wins. And it's really funny because I, you know, I had some IBM people in a room, and this is what they were saying. They're saying, well, you know, startups are agile. They can get to the patent office very, very quickly. Says a company that their business model is, or their, what is it? Their, their mission statement is to have more patents than any company on earth. You know, they, they have a thousand in-house patent attorneys and a thousand law firms outside. They file the most patents in the world every single year. And they're telling us that a, a little startup is going to beat them to the patent office. It's total bullshit. You know, well, I mean, it's it's there's also like patent privacy, piracy going on. Like the whole thing with uh, Adam Carolla, I guess it was Adam Carolla, I think, that had the issue with um, somebody all of a sudden decides to patent RSS feeds uh, and then go after him as the biggest podcaster in the market and, until they found out there was no real money to be had there. Like they assumed this guy was making $20 million a year or something like that, you know, and he... Honest to God, since it's because of the way he runs his podcast, he's probably making less money than I do, even though he's got, like, millions more listeners. And that was an example of, you know, basically, look, here's an opportunity. We'll claim ownership of this, and then we'll go out. And, you know, if he had lost that, they could have come after every single person distributing content by RSS. So everybody's like, well, that's the bloggers. Or, I mean, that's the podcasters. No, that's bloggers. That's every technology company using an RSS feed. That's every email carrier that allows RSS encapsulation of, of content. And, and that's why I think, like, that's why patenting has gotten a bad name. There's a purpose to it. There's abuse. a point to it. But it, the abuse of it has been insane. And why is the abuse possible? And the abuse is possible because the state's budget, when it comes to doing shit to people, is unlimited. Yeah, I mean, there, there's another example. I, I did a guy, I helped a, this guy pro bono, um, you know, there's there's software that can sniff torrents. Yeah. And they can capture all the IP addresses for a given download. And there's this is the equivalent of patent attorney ambulance chasers. Uh, what they do is they run the software, and there'll be a company that'll buy the, the rights to sue on, for example, the movie London Has Fallen or something like that. And what they do is with the software, they find... Uh, people that have streamed that movie 
without a VPN. Uh, and what they do is they go to Comcast, whoever's their carrier, and basically say, look, uh, these these uh, IP addresses have uh, you know have copyright violations, and what they do is they they uh, they give the comp- they give Comcast like 14 days to turn over the person's name, and Comcast turns it over immediately. What they do is they send you a letter saying, you know, unless you get an attorney ASAP, we're going to turn over your name, and they do. Yeah. And then these guys go and they sue like 30 people at once, individuals in local court like uh, th- this guy was here in Virginia that got sued um, and, and it's a total scam see because they don't really want to go to court because they're going to lose in court most likely okay because you have to prove that the person had monetary gain etc so what they do is they're like look you can pay us four grand and we'll just forget about it so they send out these threat letters and they they pick up between two to four grand per letter, and they never go to court because they know it's going to cost that person ten grand to go to court. That's the troll model, and that's what patent trolls are doing right now. Is they're they're buying patents and they're turning around and they're suing corporations, and they know that it's cheaper to just pay the troll than to go to court. And it's really an abuse of the patent system. It's something that needs to be stopped. You know, I'm on the other end. I'm here in the trenches with the small inventors and startups that are trying to protect technology to survive and to protect the product that they built, you know, so they can at least compete in the market with it. No, I get where you're coming from. I, I don't understand how that would prevent Google from giving away free wireless. That's that 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 would not that would not solve the problem that you brought up. Google can well, yeah, give away. Yeah, I mean, that, that's an example of something that's not protected that, you know, how do you compete on Google with marketing? You know, and, and the point I was trying to make is that if you've got something that's protectable and you don't protect it and then it gets copied, how are you going to compete no, with I get Google that. on marketing? I get know, that. That's, that's what I was trying to get at. Yeah, that makes sense. Anyway, man, I've enjoyed talking to you today, um, especially the stuff you're doing with aquaponics. And uh, you have a great YouTube channel. I'll make sure that I have a link to it in the show notes along with your Facebook page. Uh, you don't actually have an individual website with all this stuff on it, do you? No, I, I've only used, I haven't you know I haven't gotten big enough. I mean, this is a hobby, so yeah. I've only got the Facebook page and the YouTube channel. What about um, for people that might want to hook up with you on a standpoint of uh, retaining you for services as an attorney? Uh, well, you know, villamars.com. Think of a villa on the planet Mars. <laughs> okay. Interesting story. I, you know, I was trying to get my own name. My last name is Villamar, which means Villa by the Sea. Uh, as it turns out, Villamar.com is a resort in Mexico, <laughs> so I couldn't say they were cyber squatting. I mean, like if somebody took your name and created, you know, JackSperko.com. Yeah. And they really, you know, they were doing it just to like ransom you. You could sue them and get your domain back from a person like that. It's called cyber squatting. Yeah. So, so this Villamar.com is an actual resort in Mexico, so they weren't cyber squatting. They have, a, they, have, they have a legitimate use for it, so yeah. Yeah, so I couldn't get Villamar.com, but my wife works at my firm. She does the, uh, the trademarks, copyrights, and contracts. So I was able to get Villamars with an S, and it gave me the perfect mnemonic device. I tell people... Picture of Villa on the planet Mars. Okay. And you will always be able to find your VillaMars.com. Cool. Well, I'll make sure that's in the show notes as well today, too, man. And I appreciate you being with us today, Carlos. It's been a pleasure, Jack. I'd like to, I'd like to uh, get some notes. If you posted any stuff about your sheet composting, 
that kind of stuff. I'm going to be trying to perm out my yard this uh, this year, so any help is appreciated from yourself or any of your users. I'd be I'd really appreciate the help. Okay, cool, man. Again, thanks for being with us today. All right, brother. Take it easy. Great interview, and uh, I actually enjoyed the little bit of intellectual level debate there on the concepts of patent law. I, I, I actually enjoy debate when you can have a reasonable, articulated, logical debate uh, where both sides respect each other and both sides actually know what the hell they're talking about. That's that's far from what we usually have uh, today. So I don't even know that we disagree hugely, but uh, given I am an anarchist and He's an attorney that uses the state. There's got to be some uh, point where you kind of grind stones against each other a little bit. And that was, that was actually entertaining for me and in, in a most positive way. And I think it's an example of how people can disagree about something and actually discuss it and both sides make their point and both sides be heard. And maybe both sides come away and both say, I still feel the way that I do and they still feel the way that I do, they do. And, but you still respect each other. So I'd like to see more of that in political discourse, honestly, but don't look for it anytime soon. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you want to support us, one of the ways that you can do that is uh, by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. Whenever you're going to buy something on Amazon, just go to tspaz.com first, and you can look up all of our reviews of items on Amazon. You can also click on a link that shows you the deals of the day. Get over to Amazon that way. Take a look at those deals of the day, and if you don't want any of them, who cares? Just go ahead and search Amazon for whatever the hell it is that you were going to buy anyway. Buy it, and by going through our portal, you help the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. I also have items I review every day. I'm bringing one back today uh, that was really well received last year. It's made by a company called E-Tech City, and I love E-Tech City. Uh, they are just a fantastic company, and uh, they really stand behind their products. This is a four-pack of LED lanterns, and I'm doing the same thing I did with the Kingbow lanterns. I'm bringing them back because it was brought to my attention that they're on sale. These guys usually sell a, uh, a four-pack of these LED lanterns for $25.99. And I listed them when they were like that, and it's a really good deal. Right now, they are on sale at Amazon for $5 off for $20.99. So that comes out to like $5.20 a piece for these lanterns. And they're very bright. They're the kind that like they fold flat down, and you pull them to open them up. You can hang them from something, so they provide visibility. Uh, we just got a new Toyota 4Runner. And thankfully, Toyota pulled their head out of their ass, and there's actually lights now when you open the, hatch, the back hatch at night. Until that point, though, there were like the last model we had, there was no lights back there. So I took one of these, and there's a little compartment back there, and I stored it in there. And whenever we were unloading the truck at night, I would just pull that lantern out and hang it up, and I could see what the hell was going on. Lots of things you can do with these things. They really belong in your blackout kit. I'm a big believer that every family, one of your first steps with preparedness is put together a blackout kit. That's all the stuff you need to function with the lights out. That's not your generator. It's not even your battery backup system. It's flashlight. It's batteries. It's a radio that runs on batteries. It's you know rechargeable batteries that go with your, your battery backup system. It is just the stuff you need to get your shit together enough to then figure out, okay, is this a minor inconvenience and we just don't worry about it? Uh, maybe some candles that you can light, stuff like that. Or do we need to pull the generator out now? Do we need to start worrying about putting, you know, blankets over the refrigerator and freezer to keep the food cold? Or, you know, when you call the, the power company to report the outage, uh, they say we know about the outage and you should be up in two hours. Where you just say, okay, let's, 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 uh, let's throw some steaks on the grill since the, the stove's off and go on about our lives. But you have that blackout kit to get everything together first. 
These belong in there. They're probably one of the best products you could have in there. They have extremely long life. They provide a great deal of light, and they just work. Read my write-up on them, and I think you'll be impressed with what they offer for the price. Are they the best lantern known to man? No. But at five bucks and twenty cents a piece, uh, I just ordered another set of them just to have additional redundancy uh, in our additional, you know, our ability to provide lighting for ourselves. Uh, when I bought these initially, I bought two sets of them uh, right before Christmas last year. And I thought, you know, I could use eight of them, but I really don't need eight of them. And the first thing I did was think, hey, my son and his family, I know they're not practicing what I preach. So we gifted a set to them, and I know they've paid off for them already. They'll probably pay off for you, too. And, again, they make a great gift. Again, E-Tech City, four-pack of LED lanterns, 20, $21 bucks for four really great LED lanterns. And when they fold up, they're about the size of an iPhone, though they're round and, and a little bit thicker. Uh, check them out. Again, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That brings us to our song of the day today. The song of the day today is a song that I've actually played before, but not this version of it. And actually find this version of it, because I don't have the album. I had to use a live version. Uh, but the, the Scorpions came out with an album in 2001 called Acoustica, which, of course, acoustic. And uh, one of the, the, the things they featured on there is the song Winds of Change which had been released 10 years earlier, that, of course, celebrated the coming down of the Berlin Wall. And I think we need, when we look at the lens of history, we need to think about how monumentous things were at the time that they occurred. And I think we have a tendency, even with recent history, to overlook that. And I say, I say recent history, right? The Berlin Wall comes down in 2001. I call it recent history. It's like 26 years. 26 years, and to me, it's recent history. And I guess what I mean by recent history is something you remember well. I think when you remember something well, you feel like it's recent history. And as I said, though, in 2001, I didn't even know what was going on. I was deployed to Honduras when that happened. I had no clue that any of this was... I didn't know the Soviet Union was falling apart. I didn't know the map of the world was changing. I had no idea. I found out later. But then I got like how big a deal this was. And I think one of the reasons we need to remember how big a deal these things are is so that we don't feel defeated today. If you would have told somebody in 1986, you know, don't worry about the Soviet Union. Don't worry about Eastern Europe. This whole thing is going to come crashing down in five years. They would have thought you were batshit crazy. You know, and I was talking to Carlos today about how I, I don't even think this whole concept of uh, the things he's worried about are, are even going to be an issue in 10 to 20 years. Because we're going to have decentralized organizations that are autonomous. They can't be shut down because they're so decentralized you can't get your arms around it. And that we're going to see many of these systems that are so onerous begin to just fall apart under their own weight as new technology and new ideas take us forward into a much better place. There could be a lot of pain while it's going on, so be prepared for it. But the destination is clear. Humanity has evolved toward liberty. And to tell somebody in East Germany, don't worry, in less than five years, you will know the same liberty that your German brother on the other side of that wall knows. You have nothing to fear. Just keep your head down and keep working and, and do whatever you can so you're prepared for that day. They would have thought you were crazy. But the wind of change blew. The wind of change is blowing now. The wind of change also usually has violence associated with it, anger, the death throes of a leviathan, 
a lot of pain, a lot of danger, a lot of risk. But getting to the other side is usually worth it. Does it sound familiar to you? The other reason John Adam picked this song for us today is it is indicative of something that was really happening in music about this time, 2001. The term unplugged became a thing. All of these bands, especially rock bands, rock bands, heavy metal bands, that people thought, oh, it's just noise. It's just loud noise and thrashing guitars and they're covering up their lack of talent. Once one big group did it, Everybody went, this is a thing. We can, we can repackage our music and sell a whole new album. And we can also show something that we really do have talent as musicians. And I tell you what, I think a lot of the songs that have been re-released as acoustic versions have been better versions of the songs that they came from. So we're seeing a turning point in time, the reiteration of a turning point in time in 2001, with Wind of Change coming out right as 9-11 is changing the world yet again. And we're seeing a change in music. And today, the wind of change is blowing yet again. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life. If time... Help. <laughs> helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Just in the end.